Well, tonight I invite you to stand, and uh, we've got a great song that just reminds us of who our God is. simply says, this is our God. Remember those walls that we concealed in shame. They were like prisons that we couldn't escape. But he came, and he died, and he rose. Those walls are rubble now. Remember those giants we called death and grave. They were like mountains that stood in our way. But he came. And he died, and he rose. Those giants are dead now. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. He fought at the cross beneath the grave. Let heaven and earth proclaim. This is our God. King Jesus. Remember that fear that took our breath away. Faith so weak that we could barely pray. But he heard every word and he whispered. Now those altars in the wilderness. Tell the story of his faithfulness. Never once did he fail, and he never will. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is who he does. He saves us. He bore the cross, baby, to the grave. Let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Who pulled me out of that pit? He did, he did. Who paid for all of our sin? Nobody but Jesus. Who pulled me out of that pit? He did, he did. Nobody but Jesus who rescued me from that grave. Yahweh, Yahweh, who gets the glory and praise. Nobody but Jesus who rescued me from that grave. Yahweh, Yahweh, who gets the glory and praise. Nobody but Him. This is our God. This is who He is.
Christ is born in Bethlehem. 
great to be able to be in your presence like this and to truly behold you. You are the God who loves us. You are the God who has set us free. You are the Prince of Peace that the angels sang your glory. So we behold you, our Lord, our God, our Alpha, our Omega. And we say thank you this evening. All my words fall short. I got nothing new. How could I express all my gratitude? I could sing these songs as I often do. And every song must end and you never I throw up my hands and praise you again and again. Cause all that I have is a hallelujah, hallelujah. And I know it's not much, 
but I've nothing else sent for a king except for a heart singing sometimes we feel like our words fall short we know that sometimes when we bring you our offering what could we bring you 
the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet really all you ask for is our lives. You ask us to give you our lives as a living sacrifice to just take our everyday ordinary life and to lay it at your feet as an offering. Asking you to bless it. Asking you to take it. Be honored by it. By everything we do and say. So we thank you for these times of being in your presence to worship you. To remind ourselves of who you are, what you've done for us. And to also have the opportunity to say, God, we love you deeply. And we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I thought before we got started tonight, this Wednesday before Christmas, that we would just take about 30 seconds and just pause. Just breathe. Before we get into God's Word and, and the study, that we would just clear our mind and clear our, 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 our thoughts, the cares of the day, and just be at a place of, of, of quiet before the Lord. So let's do that even now. May all those who have angst be still. For all of those that have a checklist, may we set it aside. Father, I thank you that in the stillness of the moment, you're here. May you quiet our souls, Holy Spirit. May we rest in the presence of the Holy One. May we fully receive all that you have for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you speak. I thank you that you're present. I thank you for your peace. I thank you for the hope that we have. I thank you for the joy of our salvation. I thank you for your love unmatched by anything in this world. 
I thank you for each and every person that's here and those watching online. God, right now, we sit before your throne of grace. Word of God, speak. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to pause and reflect on on just being still because in Hebrews chapter 4, it's really about the better rest. No doubt, every household represented here has been busy getting ready for Christmas. The shopping and the the, the, the purchasing and, and the wrapping and, and all of that stuff. My encouragement to you is this. Sometime between now and Sunday, take some time. 30 minutes, an hour, half a day. Take some time and get away. And sit and be still. And be at rest. It's important that this Christmas doesn't blow by like all the ones in the past. And then you forget about it. And you move on to the next thing. So where would you go to go find rest? A lot of people have different places that they go. I like to find rest for me sitting out fishing. I like to find rest sitting out in the woods watching nature. Sometimes rest is in a sunrise and watching that, that sky get painted orange and red. Sometimes rest is watching geese flying off with Mount Hood in the back. Sitting in a duck blind and not shooting, just sitting. It's important for the rhythm of our soul to find rest. It's important so much so that God created rest. God's the designer of rest. When life presses in and you feel the anxiety of of stress, I've got this, i got that, i got this, i got that. Then you know it's time to come apart before you come apart. To be able to be in that place. Some people will run and they'll hide in a bottle. Is there rest there? Some people will run to a store and find rest there. There is definitely not rest there. Some people will binge watch TV. Some people will try to find rest in food. They'll try to find rest in crowds. They'll try to find rest in all kinds of different things. The place of rest really is at the throne of grace. To find that place to be there. And as a Christ follower, we're going to encounter hardships. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Within this... How does the child of God find rest? How do we find a place? Where do we run to in the midst of the storm? The Jewish Christians that this this letter has been written to were in turmoil. Under the Roman occupation, they were being tormented because they were Christians. 
the Jews, the legalists, were tormenting the Jewish Christians because they were Christians and they were Jewish. And all of the pressure was pushing in and pushing hard on them. And when that pressure pushes in and that pressure pushes hard, sometimes the tendency is to run. Go back to where you were comfortable. Go back. And there's always these ideas. If I go here, I'm going to find rest. If I run here, I'm going to go find rest. I had it so much better back here. So much easier. And we forget all the turmoil and the hardships and all of these different things. For these Jewish Christians, in this new faith of Christianity, as they were learning how to walk in the Spirit, and the freedom that God had afforded them, it became difficult because they really didn't have a pattern to look forward to. It's not like us who have history of the church. This was all new. And all these pressures were coming in upon them. And they thought, well, maybe it would be better for us to go back to Judaism. We know that. It's comfortable. Maybe we should just give in. And we'll get a break from this opposition. What happens when a Christian starts thinking about anxiousness and anxiety and and stress and all of these things? What's happening really is their faith is under attack. The reality is your faith is under attack because what's being questioned is the sovereignty of God. The power of God, the ability of God to overcome anything and everything that you're facing. If God is sovereign, and He is. If God is omniscient, and He is. If God is omnipotent, and He is then there isn't anything that you encounter that God can't handle that He didn't already know ahead of time. You can be at rest within this. And this is where faith comes in. The problem with Israel, and as we're going to see in chapter 4, and we're just going to do chapter 4, we're going to leave Melchizedek for a couple weeks. We'll do that in a couple weeks. But in chapter 4, the problem and the challenge to the Jews is unbelief. Unbelief will rob you of rest. Unbelief will rob you of peace to be in this. And so when we think about this in the illustrations we're going to read through here is that Israel was excluded from entering into the promised land, Canaan land. Why? Because they didn't believe God could take out the giants. So God excluded them from the rest that he promised a whole generation and would bring them back in. And so as the author is moving forward, he's describing a lot of different things. One, he's describing to these Jews, and he's, he's systematically tearing apart all their reasons to leave Christianity and go back to Judaism. And so the first one is he tears apart the fact that, that Jesus is better because he brings a better message, the gospel. Jesus is better because he's a better messenger of God's word, better than Moses or better than the angels. Jesus is better because he, has a, he, he is preeminent over all of the different things, including the rest that is offered in the land. And so he's moving through to give to these readers and to us a complete rest. You ever think about rest in the Bible? Primarily there's three. God started with Sabbath rest at creation in Genesis. Then God promised to Israel rest in the land of Canaan. 
And then lastly, God promises the church eternal rest and all believers rest in heaven. So what does God really want to give to people? Rest. A peace. And so when we doubt God's ability to bring rest, we send ourselves into anxiety. We send ourselves into stress. When we doubt, God, you can't do this. Get out of the way, God. I'm going to handle it. Well, then anxiety comes. We feel like we're in control. Question, are we in control of anything? Nope. We are in control of absolutely nothing. God's sovereign. But it's a challenge in our psyche because we like to be in control. We like to do this. The problem is the, the disobedient were left to wander. So Israel is looking for rest. Question, has Israel found rest yet? No. Why? Because they're not trusting in God to give them rest within this. And so these Jewish believers that are here are, are being warned to avoid following the same pattern of their ancestors. To the, the pattern of unbelief and coming up short of the rest. Do you know that God has spiritual rest for you and His promised to all believers? And that rest could be right now. You can be at rest. No anxiety. No worry. But it's all key to the level of faith by which you trust it. And whom you trust in. It's a rest for believers that exist beyond boundaries. It actually exists beyond this temporal world. It really exists in the heavens. And that's where Jesus is. That's why Jesus brings a better rest within us. In studying this, this book of Hebrews, there's 12 admonitions. In chapter 4, there's four alone that we'll take a look at. In four one, let us fear coming up short of that rest. In 4.11, let us be diligent to enter into the rest. In verse 14, let us hold fast to our confession of faith. In verse 16, let us draw near to the throne of grace so that we might receive grace and mercy. Chapter 4 is one of those nuggets, and, and that's why we're, we're going to go kind of slowly through it. Because I want to mine out, and I want to take our time and not rush through this and see... All the facets of rest that's here. One of the things that I think is so important why Jesus is better and His rest is better is because His rest is established and kept in heaven for us. And at the end of this chapter, this section, we're going to be given an invitation to God's throne of grace. To be able to be at that place. And how we get there is super important to bring peace to us. And again... These, the danger of these Jewish believers is failing to believe that God can. It's failing to believe that God will. It's failing to believe very simply in the Word of God. It starts that simple. And failing to believe that Jesus is a high priest, the perfect high priest. And He brings something better. So let's jump right into it. Chapter 4. We're going, to, we're going to take a look at this. Verse 1, starting out, it says, Therefore, let us fear, if a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So we start out with the, one of the first admonitions in verse 1. And he says, let us fear of coming up short. Now, Israel's disobedience was, was going to be 
a warning for everybody of unbelief. He says, look, you need to be afraid of coming up short. This is not a passage that promotes conditional salvation. That's not what he's talking about. But he says, look it, I want you to be careful. I want you to fear. We should all have a healthy fear of the Lord, shouldn't we? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A healthy fear is a healthy respect of God. Israel's disobedience came out of a lack of fear. And God's not going to bless the disobedient. And God's definitely not going to bless those that don't, that don't believe. God, I don't believe in you, but will you take care of my life? Really? How does that work? God, I really don't believe that you can do this, but I really want you to provide for me. The insanity in it, it, it just blows your mind within this. And so with what Israel did in Canaan land is they rejected God's promise. God said, I'm going to give a promise to Abraham. Genesis 12. The land, a seed, a blessing. I'm going to take you to this land. Now you think about it, and the important thing is this. God had already proved himself to the nation of Israel in Egypt, didn't he? How many times did God prove himself that he's powerful, sovereign, and all that? Ten different times in the plagues. How else? In the parting of the Red Sea. How else? Through the feeding every day with manna. How else? Through the quail. How else? Through the water. And then they get to the edge of the Jordan and they go, Ah, God, I don't think you can do this. Really? God says, fine. This generation go walk around for a while. They failed. They came to the edge. And one of the dangers of us and like these Jewish Christians is we forget all that God has done in the past and how he's proven himself faithful time and time again. And we forget all of that. And then we lack the faith to move forward because we've forgotten what he's done in the past. And we say, well, God, you can't do this. I don't think you could do this. I'm going to go back to my old system. I'm going to go back to my old ritual. I'm going to go back to my old lifestyle within this. So many people have been frustrated and overwhelmed by the, the situation in front of them that due to unbelief, they turn their back on God and then they walk away. How many believers or how many people that profess to be believers do you know that have come up and hit the wall of a, uh, a trial, tribulation, crisis, they hit that and they... Turn their back. And they forget all that God's done. That's the danger of unbelief in forgetting within this. You know, it, it, it's kind of like... And, and, and so I liken this, because it's not conditional salvation, I liken it to this. And I want you to picture this in your mind. Because it'll help explain some things. God revealed himself in an incredible way. And the nation of Israel. Took him out of Egypt, kept him throughout the land and all of that. Right? But they never fully trusted in God. They just walked in the presence of God and the blessings of God. But they were never fully committed. The commitment would come when they would have to cross the Jordan and go into the land and actually commit to enter into that promise. There's a lot of people where God has revealed himself in incredible ways, brought them out in, in, into the condition of, 
a faith community and put their life back together and, and structured and everything's going good. But when it comes time to make that commitment to say, God, will you forgive me of my sins and be Lord of my life? They can't make that final commitment or that final step. They say, God, you're not really all that I thought you would be. And they turn and they walk away. I know a lot of people that are alcoholics. And they enter into sobriety and they work out their sobriety. But they're not healed yet. Why? They're not healed because they haven't fully committed their life over to the Lord. They get right to the edge. But they won't fully commit to the full healing of the body, soul, and spirit. And due to unbelief, many of those people relapse. Because they haven't fully committed to the complete healing that God has for them. Many people have come into a faith community and they've experienced the presence of God, but they've never fully embraced faith in God. And so they, they struggle with that. Israel experienced the blessings of God coming out of Egypt and the promised land, but they never experienced and given themselves fully over to faith to go into that promised land. And so therefore they never had that rest. Rest means this. God's protection of peace and safety. Deuteronomy chapter 12 verses 9 through 10 says this. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. And he gives you rest from all of your enemies around you so that you will live in security. By definition, God says in Deuteronomy, you are not entering into the rest until you cross that Jordan and you get into the land. As an individual, you are not in the, the peace and the rest of God until you cross over into a full committed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. There is no rest. And I know a lot of people come up to that edge, but they never fully commit. Therefore, they never enter into that rest. We have to enter into that rest and the promise. Just as God promised this land, seed, and blessing to Abraham, God was faithful to carry it forward you can read about it again in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And Abraham followed by faith. His descendants by faith. They, it, it, they're in that place. The readers of this passage of Hebrews, where are they at? They already have the land. Israel is already in the land. But they don't have peace, do they? Question. Is Israel in the land today? Yes. Do they have peace? Do they have rest? No. Why? Because of unbelief, they have not entered into Yahweh's rest. They've never entered into that place of rest. Therefore, they're still without the rest, even though they're in the land. But you know what's amazing about this? God never reneges on His promise. That promise is always there. We know what's going to happen based off of Revelation, but I often wonder and think about it. What would it be like if there was national repentance where the whole nation would surrender and, and, and confess and, and turn as a nation 
as Israel would turn and confess that, that, that Jesus is Messiah and to come to that. It would be mind-blowing. But they finally would come to that place where they could be at rest. Now, there's plenty of, of, of Messianic Jews that are doing that. And they find that rest on an individual basis. So within this, we see that, that there's a rest. And for believers, there's a rest that still remains. And so, as the writer is writing to this, he says this, there remains a, a rest for you. Don't come short of it. It's a warning for us today as Christians. Don't come short of experiencing the peace of God because of unbelief, anxiety. And, and so we make the same mistake often as the Jews do. We come up short within this. So how do we enter into that rest? We need to hear the Word of God. Look at verse 2. It says, For indeed, if we had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard no, did not profit them, why? Why did the gospel, the good news, why did the good news of a promised land, the rest, why didn't it profit the people that hear it? Because it was not what? United by faith in those who heard it. There is a condition that happens. You can hear the word of God, but unless that word of God is united and connected with faith and bound with faith, the word of God has absolutely no effect on you. It just goes in one ear and out the other. That's why you, so many times you, 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 know, you sit there and you preach the gospel to somebody and you look, I might as well preach to that wall. Because it has no effect, because it's not mixing with faith. The word of God has to be united with faith, which is action in order for it to have any effect. You can do as many Bible studies as you want, but if the Word of God is not united with faith, it will have no effect on your life. It has to be united with faith. Israel heard the promise of God. From generation to generation, they heard of the promise of God. And, and those reading the letter, they, they heard it. But faith without action is not real faith. James would talk about it in James chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. He says this, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by work when he offered up Isaac his son at the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. God said, Abraham, offer up your son, your only son, Isaac. My only son? Yeah, your only son. Okay, offers up Isaac. Why? Because God originally said, from you will come many nations. He's my only son. If I offer up him, how's God going to do this? I don't have to worry about that. I'm going to offer him up, trusting in God's original promise. That is, actions of faith based on the word of God spoken within this. We need to be able to be in that place where actions are united by faith to enter in that promise. You have to act upon what God says, and that is that faith demonstrated to be able to be in that place to enter into that rest. God says, I will give you rest. Okay, you said you'll give me rest. I am trusting in that promise. But God, no, 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 
No, but. I will give you rest. But how? No, but. I will give you rest. Well, give me the five point plan of how this is going to work out. Just trust. But God, it can't be that simple. Quit saying, but. You have to accept God at His word and be at rest. The actions that demonstrate your faith shows that your faith is alive. And, and it all comes with where your rest comes from. Where does true rest come from? Simple. God. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says this. For we who have believed entered enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter rest, although his works were finished from the foundations of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Now we look at this, and what is he saying? He's saying this, and, and he's quoting Psalm 95, 11. He says this, Therefore, I swore in my anger truly that they shall not enter my rest. Now, there are two kinds of people. Those that have faith in God and have rest, and those that don't believe God, and they're in unrest. Question. What kind of person are you? So, I don't know. Sometimes I'm at rest. Sometimes I'm not at rest. Okay, fair enough. When you're not at rest... Why? Are you looking to God to be the source of your rest? Or are you looking for something else? If you're looking for something else, you're never going to find rest. God is the source of rest. And so we have faith united with works based on God's Word. It's a personal faith. And if you refuse the Word of God... You're refusing every opportunity to be at rest. Why do we spend so much time in the Word of God? Because it's the only place that we're going to find rest within this. Later, the writer's going to declare that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Why? For he who comes to God must first believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. It all comes to faith. Do you really believe that God is God? And, and don't give me the Sunday school answer. Yes. Do you really believe it? Because if you really believe that God is God, there is nothing that God cannot handle. God can take care of everything. If you really believe that God is God, there are no mistakes in your life. If you really believe that God is God... Whatever Satan wants to use to destroy you, God will use for good. And in all of those truths, you can find rest. Why? Because then you can say, not in a cliche form, God, you do have this. I'm going to rest in your hands. I'm going to please you and trust in you. And God's looking at you and saying, yes, I trust in you. And, and understanding that God has provided this rest. He gives us this rest. And He gives us rest through Jesus. Jesus is the way to rest. When Jesus says, I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but by me. Prior to Jesus coming, there was no pathway for rest. There wasn't. And, and so the Jews had religion. They had a religious system that God had established to point them towards their need for rest and point them towards God. But until Jesus came, there was no rest. <clears throat> but we have that rest. How do we know that God wants rest? Well, you can take a look at the creation pattern. And that's what the author says. God created, right, six days. But it says, for he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works or ceased. The cessation of works that he was doing. Why? Because everything that was done, that needed to be done, was done. Now, I mean, did energy stop? No. But it meant that, that everything that needed to be done was done. And now it's time for to have Adam and Eve to have dominion over what God had given them. They didn't have to add to any of the creation, did they? Did Adam get up and go, hey, God, you know what? I don't think that mountain's in the right spot. God, you know, that aardvark's got, you know, like one head and a kind of wonky thing. I think you need to fix that guy. Everything that was done, that needed to be done, was done. And it meant having just dominion or just live, bad English, live in the doneness of creation, the completeness. That's rest. But why are we at unrest? We're at unrest because we don't believe God has done everything that needs to be done, including our salvation. Question. Is your salvation complete? The answer is absolutely yes, in Christ. You cannot add to your salvation one iota. You can't. So don't work at it. Be at rest. Sabbath rest was created as a model and a gift for man. Jesus would say in Mark chapter 2, 27, 28, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even the what? Lord of the Sabbath. The time to be able to rest within this and to be able to be at peace with this. And God established Sabbath as a pattern for man and for creation to be able to rest. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Why? Well, we know they sin, but why? In the midst of the garden was a tree, knowledge of good and evil. And remember, God ceased in his created creation, right? All the creation was done, and it was perfect. And he said it was what? Good. Adam and Eve see this tree in the middle of the garden. God says, don't eat of that tree. It's the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat of that. Eve says, it looks good to eat, pleasing to the eyes, and it makes one what? Wise. In other words, I need to add what God had done because I'm not complete enough. I need to help out. I need more of something because I'm not complete within this. So by work, she was trying to add, and Adam, they were trying to add to themselves something that God never intended for them to have and disobeyed. They weren't at, what? Rest with what God had said. 
And how did that come about? Satan gave this temptation. Did God really say, you're surely not going to die? Doubting God's promise, doubting God's word, led them into a place of unrest or unbelief. You know, as I meditated on that and that, that point today, I thought, this is a pattern that we all struggle with. And God has to judge unbelief. Creation was created to be a rest. God created six days, and on the seventh day, He rested. Adam and Eve have dominion over what? The rest. Unbelief kicked them out of the garden because unbelief led to sin, and it was out. God says, I'm not going to bless your unbelief. You're out. And so they were removed from the place of rest. And they would have to work and labor for the rest of their life and mankind for the rest of their life. Thank you very much. Because of unbelief. Because they didn't sit in the rest. Israel, here is the land. I will be your God. You'll be my people. I will surround you and give you peace and stop all of the enemies around you. You, Just let me take care of it. Go in the land. We'll create this little bubble called Israel. Keep everybody out. Destroy all the people. Get rid of their idols. Don't live with the people. Don't intermarry with the people. Don't worship their gods. Just be at rest. God, did you really mean get rid of all the people? All of them? Well, there's some good people. And they started to doubt and based off of unbelief. And they never entered into that rest. God says, come unto me, all who weary and heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest. And people say, yeah, but I don't think. You're either in rest or you're out of rest. In a state of unrest. And the writer says that there remains a rest for God's people. Look at verses 6 through 10. Therefore, another therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had, got, had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, and he says, Today, saying through David after such a long time, just as has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people, for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his work as God did from his deeds. And so now the writer is building onto this and he says, look in verses 6 or 7, don't harden your hearts against God. Is the writer speaking to the Old Testament Jews or is he speaking to the Jewish Christians here? To the Jewish Christians here. Is he also speaking to us today? Yes. Do you have a choice to harden your heart against God? Yes, you do. Every time you say, God, you can't do this. Every time you doubt God. Don't harden your hearts. That is something that that you can push back on. Unbelief will harden your heart against God. Saying, and if you say, God, you can't, 
enough. If you harden your heart against God, God's going to go, okay, hands off. You're on your own. And people harden their hearts. And again, it, it's a contrast against the Old Testament Jews that failed to enter Canaan land. And these New Testament Jews that are saved in danger of going back into a religious system that's going to put them under bondage. There's no rest in the law. There's only rest in grace. There's no rest in sacrifice, because you're going to have to do it all the time. But there's rest in Jesus Christ who atoned and paid for our sins. To be at rest. God doesn't revoke His promise, but He warns us not to go back to a system that will put us under bondage. And notice what He says in this universal call. Today, if you hear the voice, then act in faith. One of the things that we're doing on Sunday nights with NextGen is we're working through um, the study of Blackaby experiencing God. And, and I'm watching this, and I'm watching God work with that group and listening to people, how God is giving these little nudges. And all it took was, was really kind of going through a study and saying, hey, look at where is God working? Where is God giving this nudge? Go there and watch what God does. And by faith, they lean into the nudge that God gives them, and, watch, and they're watching God do all of these amazing things. Some hard things, but still amazing. God nudged Israel out of Egypt. Well, he kind of kicked them out, but but he got them in the land. And God's been nudging all along. God nudged you, and you responded by faith. God nudges all the time and respond by faith. Today, if you hear his voice, then act in faith. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When you hear God's voice, do it. When you feel that nudge, that spiritual nudge, by faith, act on it. And watch what God does. Watch how God moves you and, and uses you. One of the difficulties in, in the Jewish culture is the patriarchal worship. Really looking at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, all of these people. Well, Joshua gave us the land. And so the writer says, well, if Joshua's intention was you got that land and you would be at peace, then he wouldn't have spoken in another place of rest. In the Jewish culture, there is a thing, and it's almost, almost to the point of idolatry of worshiping the land. And what they've forgotten is who gave them that land. So they worship the land, they worship the borders, and I believe it is a gift of God. But, but if they miss the giver of the gift or the giver of the promise, then they miss the whole point. If Joshua had given us this land and the land was the ultimate place of rest, why didn't it work out? And why did Joshua speak of a different rest that was yet to come? Don't worship the land, but be at rest. But again, they disobeyed with God. They cohabitated with idolatrous people. They refused to recognize the Sabbath in the land. When they refused to recognize the Sabbath 
years of the land, what ended up happening to them? They got yarded off to captivity. Assyrians and Babylonians took them. Third, they disobeyed God and they worshipped the idols of the people that they left in the land. And fourth, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah and so they got kicked out of the land. But God still promises a rest for His people. Do you know when that rest is going to hit the land? There's a rest. There's a rest on earth for Israel in the land. Do you know when that's going to be? At the end of the seven-year tribulation, when Jesus comes back and establishes His kingdom, and for a thousand years, there will be rest in the land. They will have that rest. Why? Because Jesus would be on the throne. Yet, is there another rest beyond that? And the answer is absolutely what? Yes. Because it's still not the perfect rest until we get rid of this world and all that's in the world and we go to heaven. So we look at this. Jesus offers us a rest now. It's even a perfect Sabbath rest. Verses 9 to 10. He says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the one entered his rest also rested from his works. Just as God rested from his work of creation... Jesus has rested from his work of redemption and entered into that rest. And by extension, all those that are in Christ are already at rest. Because we're really in Christ and in that promise of eternal life. And we could be at rest. The fulfillment of that Sabbath rest is waiting for the believer. So when am I really going to enter into that rest? I know spiritually I already have it. It's already mine. But when do I get to enter in? When I cross that river from this world and into the presence of God. How do I get there? Because I'm in Christ and Jesus provided a path into heaven to be able to be with Him in that place. Just like Israel was on a pilgrimage in their life, wilderness, and entering that land, believers, this is not your home. This earth is not your home. You are walking in the wilderness right now. So don't try to set up a house here. Don't get too attached to it. Because it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. There's a couple of firefighters in this room that knows how fast fire will take out a house. How fast it will wipe something out. Don't get too attached to it. We've got to store up our treasures in heaven where moth, rust, fire, all those things can't destroy it within that. That is where we're going to find our peace. So verses 11 to 13 tells us that we've got to be diligent to enter into that rest. Look at what it says. He says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the divisions of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid before, bare to his eyes of him who has to do. In other words, we've got to make every effort to enter in that rest. And again, don't, don't hear me wrong. Salvation is a free gift. It's not works. You don't have to work to get your salvation. You don't have to work to add anything to your salvation. 
But you do have to work in walking in that salvation. Salvation is a very narrow path that God has set for us. Very narrow. And we have to be diligent, pay attention to walk in that salvation. Salvation is a grace gift of God. And it's walking in the truth of God's word. And we've got to be diligent to walk forward in that path. We've got, to, we've got to be diligent to enter into that rest. We've got to pay attention. It's not willy-nilly and happy chance. And you say, well, you know, I, I, I might get there. You've got to be intentional about it. And you think about it, you know, you've often heard the analogy of, of, of a ship. Say a ship was leaving Seattle and heading to Hawaii. Would a captain chart a course? Absolutely he would. Would he know exactly where he needs to set the compass? Absolutely. What happens if he leaves Seattle and he miscalculates and he's five degrees off leaving Seattle? How far will he miss Hawaii? You know, probably never even see it. You're one bubble off. And I know there's some in this room, and myself included, that is a bubble short of center. That's why we have to be diligent. I mean, carpenters in here, they know, you know, you've got to measure twice, cut once. And then when you cut wrong, blame the other guy. You look at it. It's the reality. If you don't take care of, of walking in that line of salvation and be being saved in that place, it's really easy to veer off course. Be diligent. And what is the thing that you need to be diligent in to enter that rest? Not following the wrong example. The examples of disobedience. You know, I, I've been accused so many times of being very narrow-minded. And I've learned, when I was younger, I used to take offense to that. Now I take it as a compliment. You're just so narrow-minded. Thank you very much, I am. You just don't leave any room for any, any adjustments. Do you? Nope. Why? Because the older I get, I've seen what adjusting your life and compromising your life does. And making, and, and making all of these compromises. We've even seen that in the Catholic Church this week. Where compromises have been made and creating confusion. And a religious leader is looking to, to bless a relationship that is not sanctioned by God in order to try to be inclusive. No. What happened? Deviated from believing the Word of God as being truth. So yes, be narrow-minded. Be diligent. Work hard. Why? So that no one, notice, so that no one, it's not just personalized, but that no one, why? Because people are watching you will follow the example of disobedience. Which means, by extension, you have to be the example of obedience. Paul would say, follow me as I what? Follow Christ. Within this. The other thing that he talks about here is, it, in this is that no one will follow by disobedience because complacency and compromise are going to rob you of rest. When you start compromising, when you start being complacent, now you're trusting in yourself. And you slack off of fellowship or worship or prayer or study God's Word or, or service or other things. They all creep in. And then you're finding, well, you know, I, I can't find any time of rest. 
Matthew 6.33 says what? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then all of these things will be added to you. We need to be hard at work at paying attention of God's word and God's leading and God's spirit, God's guidance. That's what we need to focus on. If you aim small, you'll miss small. Make your target sure. And if rest in heaven, if, if, if that path is, is the rest that God's afforded to it, then hit that path and don't deviate. Don't get sidetracked. Don't wander. And it's easy to lose focus. We know that. Get on social media for 10 minutes. Look at how messed up your mind will be. And it will be messed up. You'll get all wrapped around the axle and you'll be mad about some social issue or whatever. We need to be careful. And we have to be diligent to depend upon God's Word. And Psalm 119, 105, 106 says this, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm that I will keep your righteous ordinances. Why is God's Word so important? Hebrews 4.12 is a powerful passage. It talks about the importance of God's Word. But we've got to read it in context. It says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The first part about that, God's Word is what? Living and active. It's not dead words on a page. It's living and it's active. That's why you can read the Word of God and it will speak to your heart. Have you ever had that happen where you read, you read something in the Bible and it applied to you that day? You read something in the Bible and it got you right here? That's because it's the living and active Word of God. It's, it's a sacred writing that is alive. But if we treat this only as a sacred thought, that's not alive, because we don't believe God's Word is living and active, it will have no impact on our life. God's Word challenges our presuppositions. It's living and it's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And it's therefore piercing in the division of the soul and the spirit. Why? Because God's Word can go places nobody else can. God's Word will drive down to the center of your being and will get deeper than your spouse, your friend, your pastor, or anybody else. It will drive to the heart. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one driving it there. And when the Holy Spirit drives God's Word into your heart and separates your good intentions from your bad intentions, now, by faith, you can act on what you were told. Powerful. Nothing is hidden from God's Word. It pierces to the deep, deep part of the soul. That's why you have to spend time in it. There's so many churches today that don't even open this book or don't even get into the book or challenge their people to read it. That's why our church is so weak. We've got to get into the book. Lastly, Jesus is our perfect high priest. Look at verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So that's the fourth hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, as yet we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. There it is, to the throne of grace. How do we get there? The high priest. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
It's at the throne of grace we find rest. He says that we go through Jesus to get to the throne of grace to find mercy when we need rest. Now, as I said, Jesus is better than any messenger, any message. He's superior to all of these things. The last part, and we're going to pick up on it in two weeks. In the Jewish culture, in the Jewish religion, the high priest is the top dog. The only problem is every high priest on earth is a human. Are they perfect? No. Are they omniscient, omnipotent? No. Jesus is a better high priest than them all because he's divine. Jesus is better than any human because he's not temporal. He doesn't have a limitation. Well, then he's so holy he doesn't know what, we're go- what I'm going through. Because the high priest is supposed to be our representative. Well, no, he is. He's divine and human. And walked this earth and experienced everything that we would go through. He lived on earth as a human and now exists in heaven with all the knowledge of humanity. That's why he's the best high priest. Because he's in heaven interceding for us, doing the work on behalf of God, presenting us before God holy and acceptable. In Old Testament, the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies how many times? How often? Once a year. What did the high priest have to do before he got into the Holy of Holies? Offer sacrifice and cleanse himself. And he could only do it once a year. And if you remember the account, you know, they'd have the robe with the little, like, pomegranate bells around there and a rope tied around his ankle. Right. Because if he missed a spot behind his ears, then he'd die and he'd get yarded out. But if there was hidden sin, he would go out. Right? And then the number two guy would have to go in. It's like, oh, no, I don't want to do that job. Why? Because they're fallible. But Jesus is our high priest who is infallible. Do you know that Jesus never had to offer a sacrifice for himself? He didn't. But he came and he walked this earth. He's better because he never has to offer sacrifice. And the high priest can only go before God one time a year. How often can Jesus go before God? All the time. He's a better high priest in, in, in that manner within this. Never having to make sacrifice, always having access to God. And so God wants us to be confident. Why? As the high priest would represent the people before the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, Jesus represents us before God's throne of grace in heaven. Within this. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit is life in Christ, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, we hold fast to the confession that Jesus is our high priest. If you hold fast, Jewish Christians, that Jesus is my high priest, and don't go back to the empty religious system of the Levitical priesthood, You'll have confidence. But if you go back to the the priesthood that's the Aaronic priesthood within this, you're not going to have confidence because that guy's human. Question, would you rather trust in human or trust in God? Yeah, it's a no-brainer. The other thing is that high priest, Jesus, verse 15, is merciful. He brings us before God 
and demonstrates mercy within this, without weakness. You say, well, how was Jesus tempted in all manners? Like, did Jesus ever lust or did Jesus ever do this? And I got to thinking about this because I've, I've talked with people and they go, well, well Jesus never, Jesus doesn't know what it's like to live in 2023. He doesn't know all the trials and all. It said, but yet it says Jesus has been tempted in all manner and yet without sin. What is the basis of temptation? Unbelief. Unbelief that leads to disobedience. Every sin, every sin, can be brought down to the lowest common denominator of unbelief and dis- that results in disobedience. Okay? Was Jesus challenged and tempted to not believe the Word of God and disobey God? Yes. It doesn't matter how it fleshed out. Every sin comes back to the condition of, I don't believe God said this, therefore I am not going to obey what God said. Whatever it is. You can take any sin and you can narrow it down all the way to that lowest common denominator. God said, my son, you go to earth and you'll die on the cross for the sins. In the garden was Jesus tempted. Yes. In his humanity, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What did he do? He denied himself and he obeyed. He obeyed the will of God. Everything that you go through all comes down to one thing. Do you believe what God says and will you do what God says? If you do that, you'll enter into his rest. That's why he ends this in verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find mercy for help in time of need. Why? Because when we come before Jesus and we go, I need rest because I am freaking out right now. And he says, I know. Here's my word. Believe it and obey it. I'm going to forgive you of sin and I'm going to give you grace to move forward. Because Jesus provides that pathway to heaven. In James 4.8 says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your heart, your hands, you sinners, and purify your double mind. We need to be able to approach God with respect, confess our sins. Lastly, Ephesians 2.12-13. Remember that you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant promise, and having no hope without God. In the world, but now in Christ, you who were formerly afar off have been no brought near by the blood of Christ. Consider what God has done, and consider what God promises you. Remember what God's done, and keep pressing on to the rest that God has for you. And fight, fight that tendency to doubt God. Believe. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that, that you give us this example in Hebrews. You challenge us and, and our doubt and our unbelief because it, it's what robs us of rest. You have that rest for us. 
And we've got to be diligent to enter into that rest. And we can enter into that rest because, Jesus, you paved the way. May we look unto you, Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. God, lead us, we pray, by your Spirit, to enter into that rest you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and we close. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in you. I believe you rose again. I believe that Jesus Christ I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. Oh, I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in the name of Jesus. said amen and praise jesus thanks for joining us in the study of god's word with pastor carrie wacker we'd love to have you join us in person for worship each sunday morning at 9 a.m or 10 45 a.m we also meet wednesday nights at 6 30 p.m warren community fellowship is located at 56 523 columbia river highway in warren oregon between scapoose and st helens For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.